I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey everyone, Dave Kittle here, owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently acquiring physical therapy practices in the New York and New Jersey area. I have one of my colleagues, Jamie Schreier, on the show today, a previous practice owner and now a consultant, coach, author, podcaster, uh, many other things. He's helped a lot of private practice owners. He's helped me a ton over the last eight years. We're just recounting that I've known him online or offline for the past eight years. Uh, first of all, Jamie, welcome on. Thanks for coming. Dave, thanks you so much. Appreciate you having me. Really excited about what you're doing. I appreciate it. So let's uh, hear a little bit more about your story. Now, there's a lot of practice owners that might have heard you speak at WebPT's Ascend Conference over the years, PPS, other events and other places where you've spoken. You were a previous practice owner. I don't know how much you want to be able to get into the details, but I know you've had, you know, like uh, great stories with staff and growing and then some some challenges with staff. You had a, a clinic, an outpatient physical therapy practice that burned to the ground. And then you were kind of at like the... Uh, the decision point of like, what do you do? You involve your wife and your family, your kids in, in interweaving in all these stories. So in terms of any therapy practice owner or healthcare business owner that's out there, what's a good jumping off point in terms of like a little bit of your story? And then we can kind of go into the, the point of your practice and then exiting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, let me just kind of share a little bit about, you know, my story, because I always feel that we think our situations are so different. And what I realize a lot of us are very similar. I mean, I've always had a passion for helping people for, you know, physical therapy, the body, the whole thing. And I knew when I graduated from school, I was going to go into my own business. I probably should have done it sooner rather than later. But I went in there. I was dating this girl. We were engaged. Colleen, we're now married. And it was just a small mom and pop. And it was just awesome. I mean, we come in, they're joking around, you know. She's at the front desk. I'm the doctor in the back doing my thing. And for about two years, two and a half years, man, life was good. And then what happened was we started hiring people. We got married and um, that was one thing because then I need to hire someone. But when we started hiring people, I made the assumption that people looked at what we did in a similar fashion. People had the same work ethic. People showed up on time. People just served and helped others. Like, I just assumed people were kind of like us. And that was a fatal assumption. And the business, when Colleen started to pull away, then she got pregnant. It really became a stressor. It wasn't fun anymore. It became more like a job. I started working more hours, even though I was hiring people to help me. My anxiety went up. I kind of, you know, talked about the pit in my stomach. I mean, that's where I felt it physically. And it got worse and worse. And I would come home like a miserable SOB. Like I was not, I mean, at work, I turned it on. I smiled. People say, how you doing? Oh, it's really great. Oh, you're in your own business and all that. But inside I was like, this is not fun. And, and as you mentioned, I don't know, maybe somebody up there pressed the reset button. It got so bad 
that I was like, I'm ready to leave. And there was an electrical fire and my entire place burned down. And I remember driving home from the beach, Eastern shore. And my father-in-law called on the phone to my wife and says, I think I just saw Jamie's office on fire. And my wife told me, and I said, good. I hope it burns down. And people are like, well, why would you want that? I go, because I didn't have to go to work on Monday. It was that bad. It was that bad. And, you know, go back to when you were younger and you were in a 10-year-old and it was snowing and then you found out no school. I mean, there's no better feeling than that. The unexpected no school tomorrow. That's how I felt. But in this case, it was no school for four months. And I contemplated leaving altogether. But I said, you know what? Let me just think this through. And I realized, Dave, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was smart clinically. I wanted to be a smart business owner, but I really didn't know what I was doing. I was never trained. I was never trained in school. I never really read any books or anything about it. I never took any courses. I never hired any business coach. I just kind of figured out if I did really good care, it would work. So. That's kind of where I then said, I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I said, whatever it takes, as long as it's legal, moral, and ethical, that I'm going to build a business that didn't require me there 24-7. In fact, if I could create a team to answer the phones, to treat patients, to bill patients and collect money, I didn't really know what I really needed to do there. So that was my like brain. And I thought I could do it within a couple of years. It took me nine years. And like you mentioned, I have lots of stories I'm willing to share. It took me nine years. But in 2013, I removed myself from the schedule. Zero patients. I wasn't even, I wasn't even in the system anymore. I said, get me out of the system. Even if I wanted to treat a patient, which of course I would always want to. No, 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 no temptation. Get me out of the My name wasn't even in there as a therapist. Got it. And Dave, my business went up 16%. My income was the highest it ever was. My team culture was just, I was blown away. And I only had two locations and 15 staff. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And then I looked around to my fellow colleagues and everyone was still struggling. And I said, this is my duty to share what I did. And that's all I did. And then from there, I went into coaching and helping others who wanted to learn how to do this. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the story. And, and I hear from so many people, the struggles and the trials and the tribulations. And I don't know what, what it was, but nine years, it, it was pretty tough. So I don't want to see people do that. And I realized that you don't have to. So that's, that's kind of the story there. And happy to share. Uh, uh, I guess more to the story was I love coaching so much that I said, you know what? I want to do this full time. And that's when, I mean, Schreier, Schreier PT was running on really automatic pilot. I had my meetings. I had my monthly lunches. I had my check-ins. I had my dashboard. I knew what was going on in the business. I went in there occasionally, said hello, grabbed the mail, shook some hands, kissed some babies. But I really was not in there day in and day out. And I said, you know what? Let me put it up for sale. And if someone bought, it had to be the right situation. And if not, things are going great now. 
But I knew I wanted to focus on building this other business, which wasn't even sure what that business would look like. So in terms of... So the original practice burned down. And then over nine years, you went from then zero again, like zero practices to the two, right? Yep. And in that process, when you said eventually you got out of the practice, you got out of the medical record, you no longer treated any patients. Do you feel like you were the bottleneck at that point? Or do you look at it as like you were just able to unplug and like work on the business instead of work in the business? And then it grew because you were working on the business rather than working in it. Yeah. One of my favorite songs is by Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror. And it's such a great song because he's talking about the man in the mirror changing the world. It's up to each one of us. Well, there's nothing more humbling than looking in the mirror and say, look, you're the reason why all of this happened. And you're also the solution. So bottleneck was an understatement. I created all of it. Everything was based on what I said and how I thought about things and how I communicated and systems I put in place or didn't put in place. And I realized that when I started to learn how to do some of these things tactically, I still understood that I had to improve as a leader, as a person, as someone able to communicate, someone able to be empathetic to my staff. Um, it, it was less about strategy because there's always strategies out there. And it was more about, I had to step my game up. And too many times I would be blaming other people, other circumstances. Well, you know, I, I hired and fired 25 people in one year. True story. In one year, I'm sitting there having dinner with a friend of mine. He goes, well, who'd you fire this week? I go, why would you say that? He goes, Jamie, every week you tell me you've hired someone or fired someone. I go, really? So then I looked back and I realized I let go of 13 people and hired 12 people in one year. And my staff was only six people. So I went, oh my God, how could I possibly blame 13 people of being the bad person? Like, I realized, you know what? It's me. I don't know exactly what's going on, but I realize it's me. And it's a humbling experience when you realize you're the one that's actually creating all this. Don't blame the government. Don't blame the APTA. Don't blame private practice section. Of course, I blamed all of them. Don't blame the employee that came in. Don't blame because they're, you know, a Gen Z or like my focus was so much on making sure it wasn't my fault that I wasn't actually doing what I am supposed to be doing, which is learning how to be a business owner, an entrepreneur, and someone that can create something for other people. That turnover you were talking about, was that not just clinicians and therapists, but also front desk folks? Or was it the front desk and admin or it was everybody? Everybody. Therapists were going in and out. Front desk was going. Aides were going. I mean, you want to talk about... I had a toxic culture with a smile. Like talking to me, you would think I have the greatest culture in the world. But the reality is you don't lose 13 people when you only have a staff of six because you have a good culture. And let's be honest, not everyone left because they moved away. Some of them moved down the street. And no matter what I thought the company was, it wasn't what they thought it was. And it's more important for them to think it's something than to me. I was basically delusional a little bit. I saw what I wanted to see. Everything else, I blamed other people. So it was up to me to learn how to build a business, how to build a team, and how to do this in such a way where everyone wins. There were no losers. My attitude was if someone wins, someone loses. 
That's the way it is in sports. I played sport equals some game. And I realized that, you know what, it doesn't have to be like that, but learning that and doing that are not so common and frankly, weren't very easy to overcome my own self-limiting beliefs. So did you get a grasp on the culture before selling or were you in the in the middle of it, of those culture issues as to why you sold? Yeah. So my goal was to create a business that could run without me. After that, my thought was, if I wanted to sell it, my assumption was, if I wanted to sell it, I imagine it would be worth more. Just EBITDA would be higher. And if the business can run without me, I can't imagine that's not worth more. So I didn't think really past that during the time. So what I did and all the trials and tribulations that I did to get to that point, I really didn't think about selling because I was so stubborn to say, I'm going to make this happen come hell or high water. I'm not going to give up on this business. So it wasn't until January 14th, by the way, 2013, I took my name off the schedule and then I monitored how many days I took off, which was 137 that year. How much money I made, which was over 300,000, which was more money than I ever made in a small business. The staff that I had at that moment, I did a uh, webinar for PPS and I talked about like how your business is like a McDonald's. It was the first webinar I ever did. I had no idea what I was doing. I had to put slides together, I'd never done that. And I went on there and I just shared McDonald's and systems and how what I built and about. Three, four people reached out to me and I ended up coaching one of them. I never coached before. I didn't even know what it was, but he wanted to learn what I did. When I started doing that, that's when I started saying, you know what? There might be something more for me. Opening up a bunch of clinics was never really what I wanted to do, although that's what I thought I should be doing because that's what everyone else was doing. But I had two clinics. I had a third on the way. And I was like, maybe I should explore selling it. Because this is what I really been passionate about, which was coaching. So that's when I had the idea first around that. So then why did you sell? Because there's many practice owners that have, they keep their practices and then they do coaching remotely and they're not, they're not treating patients anymore, but they still own their practices. So why sell? You certainly could have done the coaching at the same time. Obviously, maybe better to get out I, of You practices. know what? To be perfectly candid, I think I just needed in this case, to cross the finish line. Looking back, knowing what I know now, being in this coaching training world for eight years, over eight years, I would go back and probably keep it. But part of me just wanted it to be done. I lost the passion of building it. And I knew that in any business, I don't care big or small, the goal has to be continuing to grow because the world is evolving. And if you stay the same, you're actually falling behind. And I really just didn't have the energy and the passion anymore. I started to fall in love with this coaching world. Yes, it was new. It's like meeting a girl. Oh my God, it's a new relationship. But it wasn't only new. It just connected with me. It connected with everything that I was about. I mean, heck, when patients came in, if I saw them work for Booz Allen, I'd treat them for an hour and all we talk about is business. Like I was always doing that. So to me, I follow what I'm passionate about and what I can also make a very good living doing. 
I could make a good living with the, with the, with the practice, but I lost the passion of doing it. What I didn't do is sell it on a downswing. It's like the market. You sell it when things are going up. I wanted to move to this next venture and sell my business on a high note and give something, someone something very valuable. So that was my reason. It's not everybody's reason, but that was me. So in the pre-interview, you mentioned that you said no to several buyers. So let's go back to that point. Um, corporates, local practice owners, maybe not even names, but why say no to several buyers? What was it about some of them that didn't appeal to you, or maybe you didn't like their reputation or their culture or like many people, you know, at a small business, my business was, I felt it was worth about one for 1.4 million. So that's what I thought it was worth just to kind of get out, get that out there. So we're not talking about $10 million and we're not talking about a half million. So I knew I wasn't opposed to selling it to a bigger company, but I learned enough in learning how to build my business. And I learned from people that, you know, some of them responsible for building seven figure, eight figure businesses and business is business. There's different parts to it as it gets bigger and different complexities, but business is business. And I knew that a bigger company that had more hands in the pot, more VPs, more people involved don't like the unknown. My business is, you know, when I was working with a consultant and selling my business, they said, what do you want? I said, I want to check and walk away. So I did not entertain at all staying on board. So I started to understand that if I don't stay on board, which is the common thing to do, especially when bigger companies buy you, they're not going to want me. I'm too much of an unknown. There's no way they're going to come to a small person, 1.4 million, only two locations. So it's not like they're getting a footprint of all of Maryland and DC, Virginia. It takes them a lot of work and effort to buy a practice. It takes them not any more work to buy 10 clinics than it is to two. I said, I'd be highly, I would highly doubt that they would buy me for the price that I want with the terms that I want. And what happened was I met with five of them and that's exactly why they didn't buy me. So it wasn't like I wasn't open to it, but I just had a feeling that wasn't going to be the case. And then the other side to that day, part of me was like, I wanted to make sure that if they bought me, my team would be taken care of. And again, no matter what a big corporate says, they're going to do things the way they do it. So I'm not stupid, but I would listen to them. If I felt confident with them, if they gave me the number I wanted and they would transition away, I'd be open to it. But to be honest with you, I just didn't think that was ever going to happen. I think it was going to be, I, I told the person, my, my person that was helping me do this, I said, look, we're going to find someone that's in the game of ramping up and purchasing clinics that's willing to take this risk because they're going to look at it as not a risk. It's actually less of a risk because my business was running without me day to day. So that means when they take it over, if Jamie leaves, it's not going to change anything. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. So some of those corporate buyers wanted you to stick around as part of a transition. Was Did they say things like a couple months, three to six months, or did they want you to be there oh, like no, years? No. Or? Not three to six months, one to three years minimum. That was their terms at the time. Because they said, well, Jamie, if, if you, you know, if you leave, we can't take that risk. Cause let, let's fix it. Like, you know, when I talk to my clients and I talk to people about selling, 
you're selling advanced years. Like that's how it's figured out, right? You have, let's just say EBITDA for argument's sake. You have EBITDA, which is profit, as you know, plus all the ad backs and everything. So you have this EBITDA number and a company saying, I'm going to give you an advance of three years, four years, five years, whatever it is. But the company expects to get that money back. They're not just, just saying, Hey, I'm going to give it to you for the, you know, for the hell of it. So, um, they, when I said what I wanted, they were like, okay, well, your, your business is worth, let's say, you know, 300,000 in EBITDA, and we're going to give you a five year marker. We need you to hang around here because we don't trust that's going to happen without you. So they weren't even open to the fact that, dude, I haven't been in my clinic in a month. Look at my numbers. Look at the bank account. I mean, this isn't made up. So part of that might be because they're used to buying practices where the owner is kind of in the thick of things they're treating and they're managing, right? They're doing all that. The one thing I've always been, Dave, ever since I was a little kid is I didn't fit into the damn box. I was the old square peg always in the round circle. And that scares the crap out of most people, which is why you're probably the same, because this is why we're entrepreneurs. Because entrepreneurs are the one that creates everything in the world. They have to be outside of the box. Well, the bigger the company, the more organized and predictable they typically are. They don't have to be. You can get huge companies that are still pushing the envelopes. They're few and far between, but they're out there. But these companies, and I don't want to say the names, but we know the big players out there. There is no way I was going to say, not only am I not going to give you three years, I'm not going to give you a day. You're going to write me a check. It's going to go in my account. I'll give you a little bit of money in escrow. That's about it. And it's going to be the best decision you've ever made. You know what they said? We'll call you later. Yeah, exactly. They they said they would pass or maybe circle back around later. So yeah, because a lot of therapy owners even now, but whether, you know, back then there was less coaching, right? There was less marketing help. There was less, uh, you know, help for practice owners to learn systems and, and be, you know, leadership and all that type of stuff, systems and processes to like unplug from the practice, grow the practice and not work in it. So it would make sense that a lot of those corporate buyers are typically interfacing with owners who are treating and they're in the It was almost unheard of. I'm not going to go on all, I'm not going to go out there and say, I'm the first one to ever do what I did. But I can tell you, I never met anybody that did what I did at the scale that I did it. I've heard people doing it at 10 clinics and 15 and multi-millions, not two clinics with 15 staff. So I'm sure there was other people before me, but you're not going to get established companies to take that kind of risk because they don't care. They can, they can hire the person that has, you know, 25 clinics and be like, that's better for us. But for the smaller person, then that's what happened. I ended up selling to someone that was fairly local. They were in Southern Virginia and they wanted to get into the PT game, which I know you know well. They wanted to get into, Hey, PT is a hot market. It is people are selling out there and, you know, they can position themselves for smaller clinics like mine, and they were willing to take a risk because the person that bought me was an entrepreneur himself. He built a hospital system. And he... But, but he, the- he was not a PT? He was not a PT originally? No, no. He's a business okay. owner. His, um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. His, his dad started a, a small hospital in Southern Virginia. He became the CEO of the hospital, built it up, 
sold it to MedStar for a crap load of money, kept the three PT clinics he had and used those as the stable to then bring in other people and start learning how to do it. So I was, I think I was his first acquisition. So we talked, we hit it off right away. And it was a very quick deal because I wanted to do it quickly because I don't like lingering here. I go, I had all my stuff prepared. So it was a 90 day deal. Um, And the one thing that scared the crap out of me was sharing it with my staff because he's like, I need to meet your staff. When did you tell your staff? At the end? Well, this is always the case, right? When do you tell your staff? Right. I wanted him. Now, granted, he had 30 times, 100 times more money than I have. So he could walk away from this deal and not feel it a scratch. I had a ton of money into this because I had lawyers involved. I mean, I was out 20 grand, which was a crap load of money for me. So I couldn't walk away, but I had to position myself like I would walk away. So to me, I wanted him invested enough. And there's always has to be a level of trust in any business deal that it was, no one's going to walk away from this. So to me, it came down to the last two weeks. I felt that everything was in order. We had a number. We had all of it. We had a date to sell. So that's when I went to my leadership team first. I told them first. I said, Hey guys, I just want to let you know that I'm selling the business and I want you to meet the people buying it. I think they're good people. They're going to take care of you. I wouldn't put you in this position. They said, yeah, we figured you were doing something. I said, Oh, really? Like, yeah, we're good. Let's meet. So no joke. Here's what happened. I brought him in CEO and name was Michael. I said, Michael, let me introduce you to my staff, introduce everyone on the team, introduce the team to them. And I said, there's nothing I know that my team doesn't. I'm going to let you guys talk. And I walked away because I wanted Michael to feel comfortable that they knew every answer. So you really didn't need me. And I wanted them to ask the questions that maybe they might be uncomfortable that I'm not there. And um, came back an hour later and he said, we got a done deal. So, um, and I know that's not how everything works. The reason it worked like that is how I built the business and positioned the business, which I can't stress enough. And I'm sure you as someone that's looking to acquire businesses, either part or all, there's no way you can give money to a business that's not generating more money. And you're not going to give additional multiples if you're not going to minimize your risk doing it. And that's all about building a sound fundamental business And unfortunately, many of us don't know how, but you can do this. You're smart enough to know anatomy and physiology and all that. So, but anyways, that's, that's kind of how that went down with telling the staff. But that was two weeks before the prospective close date. January 31st was the date. They wanted to do it before the end of the year. And I was not going to rush because I wanted to make sure everything was, was signed and all that. So this was. I think maybe 10 days before. And then January 31st, we met in the lawyer's office, signed the documents, and there was a transfer right to my account. And they held back 10% for escrow for a year, just in case that was released a year later. The only thing I did do is they said, well, what if we need you? So we created... And this was such a waste of money. I remember paying my um, my uh, like, lawyer... Like a, like a consulting agreement or something? $6,000 to create a consultant agreement. Dave, how many times did they reach out to me? Probably zero. Zero. Six grand 
for and I told them I go not that, that, you, you didn't have them you didn't have the buyers pay for that no that was that was on my dime I mean yeah it's part of the deal but it's still six grand that if I didn't pay it they didn't give me any more money because of it it was just six grand and I kept I'm shaking my head I'm like I'm just paying my lawyer paying my lawyer and I'm like this is ridiculous they're not going to ask me anything but that was it. So they felt more comfortable with that. So, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, happy to share any other details so, that your people might want to hear. So in terms of the financials, you mentioning something like either 300 grand in EBITDA or 300 grand in profit. Was that like a hypothetical number or is that kind of ballpark where you guys were at or if you're comfortable sharing? No. Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to share. So I didn't know any of that, this stuff. I didn't know what EBITDA stood for. I, I heard of it, but I really understand it. So, you know, I understood profit. And I realized profit is, is, you know, expenses minus revenue. And if there's positive, then it's considered profit. But with EBITDA, I began to learn that if it's something that's not going to move through the clinic to them, then you could actually add that back and it would be considered, quote, profit or earnings before tax appreciation, depreciation, all that stuff. So I'm like... Well, wait a minute. They're not going to have my car payment. Right. And, any, any, you know, any personal expenses, owner perks. Yeah. So I had a coach at the time, business coach. Guess what? I got all that money back, right? I got a multiple of the money I was paying. I don't know, $1,200 a month. I would get that plus a multiple of that. My cell phone, my insurance. So all of these kept adding back and, you know, my number kept going higher and higher and higher. So we finally had to agree with their CFO. Um, so their CFO and, and the person that was representing me, because I didn't want to be involved at all. They were, you know, they were talking and it, you know, it's part of it is that's an ad back. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. So I had to justify all of it. But eventually we agreed on a number. And then after we agreed on the number, then it was a matter of, so what's going to be the multiple of that number, which is typically how it's done? It's, is it going to be one, two, three, four, five, six, ten? And that's where kind of the negotiation came because they would ask me, well, ideally, what do you want? And of course, I gave them what ideally I wanted. Um, which, and then which they was the 1.4. Well, maybe or, a little bit. Or you went higher. And then they gave me ideally what they thought it was worth which was considerably less. And then it was still willing to walk away because always, you always have to be willing to walk away. If not, you're in a really tough position, but neither people want to walk away. So, but I was willing if I had to, but there was nothing in my mind that I would, but I had to give them a reasonable argument so they could feel good about paying me this, right? Like that's what my job was. My job was, I want them to feel good about what they're going to pay me, which was kind of weird because it was almost like I'm negotiating for them to feel good. Like when I hire someone, I wanted them to feel good about coming on board, good about the money they were going to make and the team they were going to take. So I said, what leverage point do I have? And that's when I went into the idea of sleeping at night not worrying an inkling about this investment. Because I did say this was an investment and you want your investments to appreciate. So I completely immersed myself in his mind and said, what would I be concerned about? 
One is element of risk. If I'm going to give you five times this EBITDA, then I want as much assurance as possible that five years from now or sooner, I'm going to get that back. So I gave them, you know, perspective around that. And I said, here's the challenge with you keep an owner on board. That's fine. The owner still doesn't have an idea what they're doing because if you're keeping them on board, it means they can't operate without the owner. And that means the owner still involved. And yes, you take time to move them away and all that. In this case, you don't have to. You have a team that's running it. So I had him see what I saw because I really believed it in the business, which helped him feel better about it. So that's one of the things that, that I did when I was negotiating is, look, me not being there, as weird as it is, it's the kind of business you want to buy. And he eventually agreed. But in in terms of you putting your your thoughts like in his mind of the buyer's mind, where you were saying you'd be able to sleep or that you currently were sleeping well, no issues, no stress, no overwhelm, that type of stuff. For a buyer, though, isn't that subjective to you, the current owner? Like that's when you're looking at de-risking the the potential acquisition aren't the buyers usually more going to be looking at the objective figures as opposed to something like that? Or is that a subjective component that you can't really so, measure, but, but it is, it does help with understanding the personality of risk there. Right. As you know, there, there's two things at play. Uh, well, there's multiple things at play. You know, one is, okay, you have equipment, you have hard assets and that kind of stuff. All right, we have assets. We have to determine what the value of it is and all that. Because their perspective is, I can open up right next to you, Jamie, and we could be successful in three years. Or I could buy you, throw some money out there, and we can have a place right now, put it into our assets, and continue to make money. Because they said they could do that. They had the the ability to just open up right next to me. So there's those assets. There was agreeing to the EBITDA. There's some, there's not too much subjective with that. I mean, there was a couple of questions they had, but that's hard facts. The multiple is, is it, that, that's also subjective. Yeah. Exactly. The multiple subjective, the profitability in the EBITDA, it's objective, but of course, there's always two sides of it. We right. weren't that far away from that. There was most of the stuff they agreed to. A couple of things I put in there, I was like, well, this, I should get reimbursed for this. And they were like, no, I don't think so. And we pushed it and we got it passed. There was a couple of things that I said, no. And we're like, okay, fine. So there's always that part. But we were like 80, 85% on the same page. It was, they thought the business was worth 850. I thought the business was worth 1.5. That's how far away we were. So the common sense would be, let's agree on 1.1. And I was like, no, I knew what it took me to get to this point. And I knew what I did was advantageous to them. So I had to help them see what I saw in risk and all of that. And a staff, what does it cost? What does it, what is a staff that is dialed into their positions, amazing culture, producing results? What is that worth? Because we're not just talking hiring somebody. We're talking about hiring this staff. And they were like, well, that's worth a lot. Well, then that's worth another multiple. What about the element of I'm showing you three, four years of consistent growth? What is that worth? 
So it is worth a lot because it's it's showing stability. It's not showing a lot of variance or up and down. Yeah. What if I showed them three months of growth? Well, Jamie, we haven't even gone through winter when typically people go down. So I was able to show them a history of that because when I was building my business and removing myself from the day-to-day, that just was my goal. The reality was I was creating a business that could operate like a well-oiled machine. Who doesn't want a business that can operate like a well-oiled machine? It's just not very common in the small market. In bigger markets, that's how businesses can be taken over. It's like a thousand people aren't going to leave. In a small business, if I buy a business that there's only seven people, half of them leave, I'm done. Which by the way, I bought a business before too. And there was only four employees. Three of them quit in the first 30 days. So so you bought a practice before? Yeah, my second location I bought. Aha, got it. Okay. I bought it. No middleman, no nothing. You know, we just negotiated and I bought the practice. So I was familiar what it was like buying a practice. And I was also familiar what it's like when you buy it and everyone leaves. Because there was no guarantee these people would stay. I had everyone under agreement, but Maryland's an at-will state. They could leave at any time and you can let them go at any time. So, you know, I think for me, the take-home message is always... Look at it from the other person's point of view. Get out of your own head because I'm sure you've heard this. I've never met someone that didn't think their business was worth so much more than it actually was. And mostly because they're not looking at the numbers. They're looking at the blood, sweat, and tears that they put into it, which is nice. But you know what? Someone buying the business, they're not giving you blood, sweat, and tears. They're giving you a check and they want to get the check back. Because this is an investment for them. Right. And if you start to look at it like that, you'll start to look at your business in profitability, in EBITDA, in where are we vulnerable. And when you start to fix the problems beforehand, it's worth more. When you sell it without that, then the company buying you has to fix those problems, which means they're not going to pay you. They got to invest in the business to fix them. It makes total sense. But as a business owner, we're so focused on the day-to-day and being in there and treating. Our brain isn't wired to think like this. We have to actually you know, learn to think like this. Once we do, there's lots of opportunities and lots of uh, things out there. So. And when you said the 1.1, they, they offered a 1.1 multiple of EBITDA? In the, was no, that the beginning? 1.1 million they offered. Oh, 1.1 million. Yeah, we didn't talk in multiples. We Multiples is kind of what we looked at, but it was really how much. Got so it. they came back 1.1. And I told, I told my guy, I said, I'm not budging off 1.4. I don't think I'm being unreasonable. It's one times revenue, which is, as you know, another way to look at a ballpark figure, one times revenue. But that only counts when there's actually significant profit and EBITDA. One times revenue with a company, and I've seen many companies that come into our program and they're like one and a half million that don't even make a hundred thousand dollars. You're not getting one times revenue. You're going to get nothing because they're going to have to put a fortune into making yours profitable. So no, they, they said 1.1 and then we figured on a number. I was happy with the number and then it was just the terms of how it was going to be delivered and stuff like that. 
Got it. So somewhere in that window is where you settled on. It was like 1.4. Got it. So, and then in terms of the, the terms of, you said 10% went into escrow for a year. So then the 90% wired that day of the closing or was there any earnout component? Nope. I was very clear on what I wanted. I wanted a wire deposit by 9, by 9 p.m. And there was. So you always get to choose what you want. Now, the question will be, it's what the other person wants. So I felt what I was asking for was very reasonable. Now, if I sold the business six years prior, when I shared some of the stories that I was sharing with you is I had two locations at the time. I had my financials were all over the place. My staff was all over the place. I was working a ton of hours. I was still treating a ton. I would have got maybe a couple hundred thousand for that business. Maybe. It, it just wasn't worth anything. And most likely, I don't know if this guy would have even bought it. And there was no way he was going to let me go. You would have had to stick around and continue treating and, and managing all that. Yeah. Yeah. I would have been the clinical director. And my goal was not to be the clinical director. I hate management. I suck at it. Management's not CEO. Management's not entrepreneurship. Management's management. I am not a manager. So if they brought me on and kept me as a manager, it would have been a disaster. So I see people so many times that just burned out because they're managing, because they're doing everything that even if they're doing a decent volume in business, they think that's what they're going to get for it. And they're like, no, you're not going to get that. If you want to sell it, then that's fine. But a lot of times there's some things you can do. Maybe maybe you don't sell it right now. Maybe you just put 18 months in building this thing and give someone like you, it's like, you'd rather have a more profitable, stable business because you don't want to write a check sure. to a stable business because that, that's potentially pissing away money. And we we want a return on investment of our money. So it's always advantageous to have a stable, consistent, you know, upward trending business. People rather pay bigger money and know what they're getting than smaller money and just make it a question mark. Right. Which kind of goes back to the offers, why you were able to get that versus, like you said, if you sold years before that, when your business was not uh, operating smoothly, then any of those offers would have been much less at that point. Oh, which, I have you know, one of my friends. Out. Also, one of my friends and, and he, um, you know, he, he had a 2.4, million dollar business. He didn't get as much as I did for mine. So it, it was two point what in revenue? 2.4 million. Got it. So you would think that business was probably worth a couple million dollars, but it was run very inefficiently, top heavy, meaning lots of expenses. The owner was still floating around in the business. It just wasn't worth what he thought. It was worth half that, which means that he was probably getting a three to four multiple of a business that should be bringing in a half million dollars a year that was bringing in maybe $120,000 a year. So then selling for 350 grand, 400 grand in that, in that window, as opposed to much more down and close. Wiping out your debt and walking away, something like that. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, look, I know some people just maybe just are just burned out. They're older. They're looking at this retirement or whatever the case is. Um, and there's always going to be that. 
And there's always going to be, you know, people like you willing to help those people out and Jorkin. But look, you're not going to change as not 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 the business owner of your business, but you as someone that's you know looking at um, taking chips off the table for people uh, or purchasing practices. You're not going to change the best practices of how to interpret an investment. Those will never change. Those are just business principles. You look at the numbers, you look at the history, you make sure things match up, you look at the assets, the hard assets. And then, of course, that's the negotiation of other stuff. It's up to us as business owners to learn about the business of physical therapy. If you don't spend time learning about that, then buyer beware or owner beware. But if you learn about that, you have so much opportunity potential to build up your business, to shore up your business, to not only make more money now and have a better life now, but to also that when you sell it, you're going to get more when you sell. It's a win all the way around. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about this and why I you know, started Practice Freedom U, because I realized there isn't that out there. And we have a profession that the best way to grow the profession is grow business owners into very smart, intelligent, prudent business owners who then can develop other things in our profession and develop other remedies and ways and all that. But, you know, it's still whatever you're developing is still a business of nature. So, and you help a lot of therapy practice owners and, and probably other healthcare business owners with, with their hiring, with their, their staff, their leadership, conducting meetings, conducting, you know, uh, team outings, all the, all the types of things that you help practice owners with. Do you have any suggestions for us as we're evaluating acquisition candidates, potential therapy practices to either partner with or acquire, whether we acquire 75% or 100%? Do you have any suggestions for us in terms of assessing their culture. So I would love to hear your feedback. So I'm looking at things that's public, like their Google reviews. What are patients saying about the current therapist? I could do secret caller, secret shopper type stuff, but are, are there ways during this acquisition process for us to assess culture? Because I know that's one of your strong suits. Sure. So if I was, if I was coaching you right now, I would say to you that I say to every person that I talk to every client, I would say, Get very clear on who your target audience is, number one, because you can't be everything, right? You need to be highly niche because it'll serve you better. And, and you and I have talked and I know there's an audience. I would get highly focused on that. Next thing I would do is I would learn their pain points, learn their struggles, learn their problems, all about them and learn their desires, learn what they want from this, from their business. So that's first and foremost, because that will get you clear on who's right for you potentially and who's not. Because you don't have time to say yes to the wrong fit people. You need right. to say yes to the wrong fit people and then determine if it's the timing's right. So that is absolutely number one. And then of course, spreading that word, which obviously you're doing with this podcast and some of the other things that you're doing. As far as a uh, vetting process, it's you know, incorporating into your system, your, your checklist. So look, meeting with the person and you have to pass the sniff test because who they are is who they are. When I get on the phone, I have a discovery call with a person. I know in five minutes, whether I think this person's right for our company, right for our business. 
I, I just know right away. I just put a lot in who people are, what they're about. Because if I don't pass that test, getting into bed with them and really learning about, it's probably not going to be the right. So coming up with that first initial call, what are some of the criteria you're looking for? You know, what's important to you? And then, of course, that moving towards, let's get clear on the metrics and the numbers, because that's going to tell you so much what you need to know of, look, if they're a nice person, great. They seem like a good person, which means they seem like a good person with other people and how they do business with people and how they do business with, you know, maybe reaching out to referral sources. So getting, getting really objective with that. Then once the, once the metrics on there, it's about assessing their team. So yeah, you can do the secret shoppers and all that, but ultimately you're going to want to speak with their team. So part of your due diligence is yes, you're looking at reviews. Do you have reviews? You're looking at longevity. Granted, it's the world of you know people leaving, but you do want to look at retention. That's stuff they can show you without actually... How long does the therapist have been working there? Yeah, absolutely. Some owners don't want us to speak to their therapist until, you know, maybe when we have the closing date, which, right. you know, every, every owner has their own, you know, you did it early, you did it, you know, weeks before. Well, I wouldn't, date. I'd be very reluctant to do that. Like I knew I had to share it with my staff because there's no way I'm going to pay someone one point, whatever, and not share and make sure they meet them. Because that wouldn't be fair to either one of them that all of a sudden the deal's done and then I'm introducing to them. You know, I mean, it's a small world. I don't want to, I don't want to walk away with a bunch of money and seem like an asshole. I just have that kind of stuff. I don't want that kind of karma around me. So for those people, yeah, you want to look at, um, you want to look at their numbers, their metrics specifically. They want to look at their utilization. And I'd be asking questions like, you know, this person's at 62% utilization. What's going on with that? Like get into how are they actually working with the person? That's what I would be interested. Like how are they working? Because that's going to tell you a lot. If you saw my business several years ago and you said, well, Jamie, it looks like you hired 12 people, but you only have six people working for you. What happened? Well, I had to let go of 13 people, 13 people. Tell me about them. What were some of the reasons? And I could give you all the reasons. Oh, well, this person wasn't good. They weren't the right fit. They moved away. And you're thinking to yourself, 13 people left you with a business of six? Dave, you would be like, thank you very very much, Jamie. I'm sure you are awesome. We're going to pass. You see what I mean? Like, you don't have to be genius to look. You would know right away, red flag, red flag, red flag. Now, at the same point... I'd be, you know, I'd be asking you, Dave, um, when you look at a clinic, some of them are proud of the people that have been there for a long time. I get skeptical with that. I've been there 10 years. You know, I have a staff, four of them been there 10 years or more. Great. Show me the productivity. Because if you don't ask someone to do anything, of course, they're going to be there. Then all of a sudden, I buy the place and I'm like, yeah, 62% of productivity is nice but we're losing money every day. So we request 90% or 80% or whatever. Now, all of a sudden, you got a mutiny on your hands. So there's ways that you can start looking at some of the metrics and diving into the staff, the staff retention. How about a simple question of, do you have regular staff meetings? 
Give me an example of how typically it goes. If that staff meeting's not about metrics and it's just about the blowhard talking, I was the blowhard for years, that are just talking, talking, talking for an hour and then I leave. That's if I had a staff meeting for many years, I didn't have one. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to have no staff meetings, then they have no communication process in place. I'd be wondering, so how do you guys communicate? Especially if the owner's treating a lot. So they're treating a lot and they're not aware of how the staff's doing. So those to me, I'd be having at least yellow flags, if not red. But I'd be talking to them in that standpoint. I'd be looking at all of the gaps that are there of why their business isn't more successful. That's If it was me in your shoes, that's what I'm looking at. Now, if I feel there are areas I can live with that we can fix... And I can, I can get a business that's fair to them, but also gives us an opportunity to grow it, then I'm okay. But look, the most important asset we have is our staff. That's the most important asset. The staff will make or break us. So if they, what kind of recruiting system do you have? What kind of onboarding system do you have? What kind of training system do you have? If you have none of that, then I know it's going to be a little uphill battle that if I buy this place, I have to be prepared for people to leave. And in a downward, difficult market to hire, that may cost me a lot more than what I'm even paying the people for. So, I mean, I can talk to you more about that, but that's that's how I would be looking at because the hardcore numbers, I know you probably have a CFO or something like that. I mean, someone like that, that's straightforward for the most part. Right. So any healthcare business owner, therapy practice owner, PTOT that wants to reach out to you to learn more, uh, email address, website. I, I know you mentioned uh, practice, practicefreedomu.com. What's a good place? Either uh, LinkedIn, social media, the website, email address for someone that yeah, I mean, you know, and, and likes your story and, and wants to learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, if you want, if you want to reach out, if you have any questions for me, always happy to answer them. I answer it live, no robot bothering. You can reach out to Jamie at Practice Freedom U, the letter U dot com. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you'll put that in the show notes. Other than that, if you want to set up a time to talk, you know, happy to do that as well. Um, yeah, I have a Calendly, just Jamie Schreier slash Discovery Call, um, and happy to talk about your business. Happy to do. Uh, you know, a short analysis, just kind of looking at your model, seeing where some of the areas that uh, can be improved. And then, you know, if, if it makes sense, you know, maybe uh, working together and, and having you join our program. And if not, just giving you some advice. I mean, look, my, my goal and passion in this is I just feel that our profession needs, you know, better, more successful people in it running practices so we can serve more people. And that means getting better at understanding our business and metrics and systems and marketing and financials. And if we can do that, we can strengthen our profession. But more importantly, we can help the people that need help out there because there's a lot of people not getting the help or getting the wrong kind of help. So reach out. Always happy to talk. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Jamie. I know you're a busy guy. You uh, help a lot of practice owners all over the country, maybe even North America or around the world. So Appreciate your time here on the show. We'd love to have you back. We could talk about any topics around coaching or growing practices, scaling, that type of stuff. We'd love to have you back in the future. Uh, Jamie Schreier, thank you so much. My pleasure, brother. Appreciate it, Dave. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. 
And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.